Welcome to the Key Wealth Matters podcast, a series of candid conversations with leading experts about how individuals and organizations can grow and protect their finances, tailored around current events and trends. Here's your host for today's podcast, Brian Peterangelo. Welcome to the Key Wealth Matters weekly podcast, where we casually ramble on about important topics, including the markets, the economy, human ingenuity, and almost anything under the sun, giving you the keys to unlock the mysteries of the markets and investing. It's Friday, January 14th, 2022. I'm Brian Peterangelo. With me today, we have two of my esteemed colleagues in the world of investments, George Mateo, our Chief Investment Officer, and Rajiv Sharma, our Head of Fixed Income. As a reminder, a lot of great content is available on Key.com, including updates from our Wealth Institute on many different subjects, and especially our Key Questions article series, addressing a relevant topic for investors each Wednesday. So it's been an interesting week. Let's start with a couple economic news items including inflation, retail sales, and unemployment. George, where do you think the economic data is telling? Well, good morning, Brian, and uh, happy Friday, everybody. It, you know, it was kind of an interesting week, to say the least. Um, I think the headline said that uh, inflation rose uh, 7% or so year over year, uh, the fastest since 1982. I think that was the year of Flock of Seagulls and, and some other uh, bands that we'll probably just uh, leave off the conversation for now. But, you know, we definitely have seen this inflation uh, narrative really kind of take hold here in the past couple of days. Uh, it's really been kind of validated by things we've been talking about now for several months or so. But, you know, inflation is quite hot. Uh, again, if we go back and, and use that reference that this is the hottest it's been since 1982, I think, you know, we have to ask ourselves kind of if, what's the right narrative? I mean, I think if you look back further in time, you know, instead of 1982, there were some interesting parallels. If I look back, for example, in 1946, when we had a similar uh, spike up inflation following World War II, and at that period of time, a lot of price controls were put in place uh, in light of the war. When those controls were taken off, we had this pop in inflation uh, in a very similar level. And, uh, you know, it came back down a year or so later, and that was maybe one analogy that people are looking at uh, this time around. Conversely, another story that people might want to think about, or maybe a narrative they might want to uh, think about, is what happened in 1966. And at that point in time, inflation uh, also moved higher to, uh, you know, seven or so percent. I think it got close to that uh, that level we're at today. And it was actually starting off a low base. And similar to what we've seen in the past decades, where unemployment was low, inflation was you know, kind of anchored around that 2% range in the mid-1960s, and then moved higher when we went through this campaign of guns and butter uh, to try and provide some stimulus to the economy at the same time fight uh, fight the Vietnam War. Of course, we know that inflation uh, from that point on moderated a little bit in the early part of the 70s, but then really spiked higher as uh, as many other uh, uh, people have talked about. So I think we're going to have to kind of think about uh, what kind of narrative uh, the inflation outlook is going forward. I think there's probably a bit of both there in the sense that we're probably seeing some uh, excessive level of inflation because of things were locked down, because of the restrictions that were put in place because of COVID-19. And now we're essentially kind of living our life again, and people are really spending quite aggressively. But at the same time, we have to be careful that we don't over-legislate policy, I think, to make inflation perhaps more problematic in the outliers than it should be. That's my take on it. Rajiv, what do you think? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, George. Good morning to you. Good morning to you, Brian. And uh, I really do feel that the inflation narrative is uh, continuing. Fed's got their ideas on it. They've got their, uh, they're focused on inflation right now. The print that came out this week was a very high print highest in what, four decades or so, it was almost in line with consensus. Uh, so I think that the market didn't move as much this week as maybe we would have thought about uh, a while ago. And, and I think that's going to continue. I think we're going to see these high prints, markets anticipating high prints, the Fed's anticipating higher inflation. I think that continues. And I think that that's really going to be the focus right now uh, in the market on inflation and, and really just looking at the data. Uh, but it was, um, you know, here we are and, and inflation is real. It's not transitory persistent, and it's going to be pretty uh, uh, big clips over here on inflation. We're going to see these prints come out 
We're going to see the Fed react to that. Interesting to see the market being a little more numb this week to the print than, than anticipated. And I think it's only because it's in line with consensus. You know, it's curious. All at the same time, we, we saw this high inflation print, as you talked about, Rajiv. This morning, we got some fresh uh, information on retail sales, and they were actually a lot weaker than expected. I'm not too surprised by this. I think it's kind of curious to see how the market reacts to this later today. But, you know, we probably had a big pull forward of demand in October, November. I think there was a lot of concern around people getting gifts under the tree for the holidays, and they might have pre-ordered some things. Um, and I can't remember the exact number, but I have to go back and look. I think you know, at that time, retail sales were up some double digits, you know, maybe kind of mid-teens or so year over year. So we've probably moderated quite a bit since then. But nonetheless, I, I do think that uh, the inflation backdrop is still pretty strong as we uh, we think about what happens through rest of this year. We've got you know wages that are still um, front and center. There's a lot of talk about energy prices, and I think they've stayed pretty elevated. And housing, meanwhile, I think is also a third lever of that stool that, to me, suggests inflation might be a bit uh, stronger. But how did you take this morning's retail sales number, Rajiv? Uh, again, I agree with you. I think it was expected. I think that uh, I was not as surprised. I will see how the day plays out, but I don't think the market's as surprised by these numbers either. I think what the market really is focused on is, again, focused on inflation, Every other data point is kind of uh, secondary to it. Even if inflation does go down as, as expected, we're not going to have these huge prints every single time. If that does happen, it's still going to be elevated, anticipated to be elevated over the Fed's 2% target. So I think that uh, these other data points are obviously very important, but the market is completely fixated on inflation readings. At the same time, unemployment ticked up a little bit on initial claims on Thursday, and I think it's probably a similar response, George and Rajiv, in that it wasn't much of a surprise given that number is a little bit volatile and it's still under the pre-pandemic level of 256,000. So at the end of the day, again, with the Fed's dual mandate on employment and price stability, we probably think that the number on the unemployment at 3.9% overall is probably a bigger factor. George, your thoughts? Yeah, I think the employment situation is still pretty solid. As you as you rightly pointed out, Brian, there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of you know fluctuations. Even the fact that they smoothed that um, the data series out over a period of weeks, it can still be somewhat volatile, particularly as you can restart a year. I think so. I'd have to go back and look at that over many years to really draw that conclusion. But I would think that the bigger picture is that unemployment, as we talked about, I think in the last call, had fallen below the Fed's target. So the Fed kind of came into this year thinking that. The year would end around 4% or so inflation, and now we're clearly below that, which I think is one of the reasons the market has really picked up and, and really kind of thought that the Fed actually might be more aggressive this year than initially thought. Um, we talked a bit about that last week, and we talked about the fact that the Fed now is likely to raise rates four times, I think is the consensus now. If I went back and looked you know, just three or four weeks ago, I think it would have been something half that. So we've seen a really significant shift in overall sentiment towards um, towards what the Fed might do. Rates moved up a lot last week, as Rajiv pointed out. But again, I don't think the employment unemployment claims number are that big of a driver. Rather, the employment rate itself is really something that people focus more on, particularly inside the Federal Reserve. And at the same time, I've also thought that other variables might be more important to watch in terms of what happens with respect to um, the employment situation. We've talked about, for example, participation rates being somewhat stuck. Um, many people are retiring. Many people are unfortunately not able to re-enter the workforce because of healthcare concerns or childcare concerns. And until we see some of those participation rates tick up, we probably have this labor supply issue, um, this constraint, if you will, that might be a bit more persistent, which again feeds into that inflation narrative. Rajiv, you know, maybe shifting gears a little bit in terms of what the Fed is uh, is thinking these days. We had a couple of nominees, new nominees put forth by the Biden administration just the other day. What's your take on, on how the, the composition of the Fed might change um, as if some of these people are successfully 
uh, pointing to the Federal Reserve. It's a great point, George. I think that the Fed and the nominees that Biden put forth allows the Fed to be a little more diverse. And it's probably going to, if these go through, these will be the most diverse nominees or, or members in, in the institution's history. So I think that you have uh, Lisa Cook, who's an economics economics uh, person from um, uh, Michigan State University. You've got Sarah Bloom Raskin. Uh, she'd be over supervision, looking at the Fed supervision. So I think these are some uh, really interesting nominees. I do think it changes the makeup of the Fed. I think that's uh, it's going to be a welcome change, I think, for the Fed. I think that's something that needed to happen. And I do think that it's going to be very important, however, to make sure that the Fed remains independent. There's a lot of things going on in the news right now, and, and, and you've seen it too. The White House is intervening with Fed policy as well, which is something that we haven't seen ever. The White House is pretty much telling the Fed to be more hawkish, telling the Fed to raise rates. We have not ever seen that in history, and it's amazing to see the, the White House intervening there. So it's going to be very important, even with these nominees, and to maintain some diversity is important. It's also important to make sure that the, the independence of the Fed remains intact. Yeah, on that note, uh, Rajiv, in, in addition, there were some comments made at the Senate confirmation hearings for both Powell and Brainerd this week with, re, with respect to accelerating and being responsive to inflation and, and using the tools that were there and, and being able to respond quickly if necessary. What are your thoughts on George's comment about a potential for three rate hikes? And do we think March is the bogey now, as well as what we might think from the perspective of the balance sheet going forward? Great question, Brian. And, and I really do think that the focus on inflation by the Fed right now leads me to believe that we will have three, at least three rate hikes this year. Fed's calling for three. The market's calling for four. I've heard actually a few uh, sell-side analysts talk about six, which is uh, really out there, but uh, I do think that uh, at least three this year, I do think we have a liftoff in March. I think the Fed is going to try to be as aggressive as possible to contain inflation. If you look at Brainerd's comments this week on her confirmation, she pretty much stick with the party line that inflation is the key right here is what we need to focus on. Uh, she did uh, talk about the rebound in growth, the decline in unemployment. Since the best in the last five decades, the economy is really working very hard to, to continue to grow. But she really wants to be tasked to bring inflation back to 2% and keeping the recovery in mind. So I think the party line is the same. I think most of the members that we've heard from this week, we heard from Barkin, Evans. They also spoke this week. Uh, Evans is very dovish, but even Evans said that, you know, it might be time to raise rates. Barkin said that he underestimated inflation last year. He thinks the Fed should be free to normalize rates in March if needed. I think we do have the liftoff in March. I think that the taper is going to go as uh, accelerated as possible to get us there. And I think they're going to really try to contain inflation. The problem to me is that, and to the market, was, okay, we're fine with the acceleration, accelerated pace of the taper. We're fi fine with the March liftoff. But in the last Fed minutes, when they talked about the balance sheet runoff, then they, that's essentially quantitative tightening. So once that came out, that's really what moved the market last week. And the real big question is, when would this quantitative tightening happen? When would the balance sheet runoff actually occur? We don't really know what the timing is, but the anticipation is it would be in the second half of the year. So if that changed, if, say, we start raising rates in March and we start doing this uh, balance sheet runoff, this Fed balance sheet runoff, that could really move the market very quickly if you see rates move very aggressively at that point. The anticipation is for more of a July start or something like that. We saw a balance sheet runoff back in uh, 2017. They capped that runoff at $90 billion per month. If we try to think of that type of scenario again, we've seen it before. It's very interesting, though, because no one thought that QT was going to be this year as well. So I think that really moved the rates a lot. What do you think, George? 
Yeah, I think that there's not going to be too much change in policy with some of the new members coming on board. You talked a little bit about that, Rajiv. I don't think it's going to be a big shift one way or the other. I mean, I think the Fed might lean a bit more dovish going forward. And I, but I think you're right to point out some of the, the bigger implications around the overall diversification of the Fed, which I think will be a welcome change uh, from many people's perspective. So I think in actual terms of policy, I don't think it, it changes too much. And uh, again, I think the bigger thing that people are concerned with is we haven't even talked about Omicron. We've been on the phone now for the last 10 minutes or so. We haven't really even spent much time talking about that. So I think that's kind of moving a bit to the rearview mirror a little bit, hopefully, fingers crossed on that. But I think, you know, we still have this backdrop of somewhat hot inflation. Uh, and again, we talked about the three reasons why that might uh, stay a bit elevated. Again, housing, labor, and energy are the three reasons we, we point to. Corporate profits are booming at the same time. So I think that, you know, I know that the Fed is, is being kind of forced to really try and take some of the punch bowl away now, but it's really kind of hard. I think it'll be interesting. Maybe I shouldn't say it's hard, but it might. I think it might be interesting to see how they can actually effectuate that uh, easily. It might be a little bit bumpy and for that reason, I think our, our outlook for the year continues to hold, which is going to be somewhat of a flattish kind of market overall. And many asset classes are going to struggle, but um, we're not calling for a recession. So we're not really calling for a really big bear market either. So volatility will likely persist and uh, we'll just have to strap on our seatbelt extra tight this year and prepare for that volatility when it comes. That's great. And last, last comment, Rajiv, you alluded to it. The 10-year touched 1.779% as an indication to some of the movement that we've seen with regard to the Fed and what's going on in the overall market. What do you think that means for bond investors going forward? And then, George, what do you think that means for the potential to invest in areas in addition to bonds? What's interesting here, Brian, is that uh, you know we ended last year where many, many thought that rates were lower than they should be based on a Fed that's in this mode of a hawkish uh, stance, and they're talking about you know raising rates and how could the 10-year be so low? I would just always point out that the two-year is really what is impacted the most by Fed policy. So if you look at the two-year, that's risen to almost 90 basis points. So we saw a huge rise. The, the two-year had been anchored at 14 basis points for most of 2020. And last year, we saw it maybe at 21 basis points for most of the year. It moved very swiftly in the fourth quarter uh, based on the Fed's idea of, you know, we're going to go out there, we're going to accelerate the taper program. We are going to increase rates. The 10-year pretty much stayed range bound. And it's interesting because uh, most people would think that why is the 10 year not moving higher? So this year we start off and we see the 10 year almost touch 180. Uh, and this week we've found some support at that 180 level. We saw buyers step in, we saw successful auctions this week, treasury auctions this week, we saw the 10 year was supported. What the 10 year is really telling us is there's doubts in the market and the 10 year really points to those doubts. Is there gonna be a Fed policy mistake? Is the Fed gonna go too far? That's why that 10-year is not, we're not seeing that rise beyond 180. The next resistance point is about 1.9. We do anticipate rates in the 10-year. We do anticipate the 10-year to go higher this year. Uh, we are calling for over 2.5% maybe for this year by the end of the year. But it's not going to be as swift as we're seeing in the front end. The problem with the Fed here is that they notice that. They notice the front end is moving higher. The 10-year is kind of staying sideways. If that continues to flatten, there could be this fear of an inversion of the curve. And that's where this quantitative tightening comes in. That's why the, the Fed is very keen on reducing their balance sheet. That's going to try to lift the 10 years so that we don't have that inversion. So that pressure on the 10 years is going to be consistent. The market's looking at the 10 year and, and thinking that there's going to be a Fed policy mistake. The Fed is known to go too aggressive, too fast, and kind of play catch up and then go too far. When something breaks, that's where the 10-year reacts. So I, I think the 10-year stays in this range-bound area right now until the Fed breaks it. 
Rajiv, I think you're right on as usual. And I think that's uh, that's going to be the key signal to watch in terms of that yield curve uh, going forward in terms of the difference between the two-year and the 10-year and probably other curves could be um, could be queued off as well from that. To your question, Brian, in terms of other things we might think about, uh, you know, I think it's going to be a really interesting year that you want to be somewhat nimble, perhaps more nimble than in the past. It's not kind of a year that you can set it, forget it, as we like to say. Active management hopefully can do well in this environment, but again, that requires active management to be nimble. So you really want to focus on, in the near term, probably some of these high quality cyclicals we've talked about. Maybe your portfolio leans a little bit towards a value orientation in the near term. But uh, as Rajiv pointed out, if things start to slow down and we start to see the Fed maybe go too far too quickly, you want to rotate probably back into more defensive positions with inside your equity portfolio, for example. And uh, I think our, our view on really maintaining a quality bias throughout this choppy time, I think is going to be well rewarded. Um, remains to be seen if that's the case, but I think quality will be one thing that endures uh, for much of this cycle as we go forward to 2022. Fantastic. George, Rajiv, thanks so much for sharing your insights today with us, and thanks for everybody for joining the call. As always, past performance is no guarantee of future results, and we know your financial situation is personal to you. So reach out to your relationship manager, your portfolio strategist, or your advisor for more information. We'll catch up with you next week to see how the world and the markets have changed and provide those keys to help you achieve your financial success. The Key Wealth Matters podcast is produced by the Key Wealth Institute. The Key Wealth Institute is comprised of a collection of financial professionals representing key entities, including key private bank, key bank institutional advisors, and key investment services. Any opinions, projections, or recommendations contained herein are subject to change without notice and are not intended as individual investment advice. This material is presented for informational purposes only and should not be construed as individual tax or financial advice. Bank and trust products are offered by Key Bank National Association, member FDIC, and equal housing lender. Key ba private bank and key bank institutional advisors are part of Key Bank. Investment products, brokerage, and investment advisory services are offered through Key Investment Services LLC or KISS, member FINRA, SIPC, and SEC registered investment advisor. Insurance products are offered through Key Corp Insurance Agency USA or KIA. KIS and KIA are affiliated with Key Bank. Investment and insurance products are not FDIC insured, not bank guaranteed, may lose value, not a deposit, not insured by any federal or state government agency. Key Bank and its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. Individuals should consult their personal tax advisor before making any tax-related investment decisions. This content is copyrighted by Key Corp 2021.